do have a few things we want to talk about um, because we've had now three weeks of going through the faith and culture material and we've went through a lot of stuff. So just to review really quickly, just to remind you of everything that we've been discussing thus far that brings us to our content tonight. In, in week one, we started talking about this landscape that we knew that we were aware of, but very unfamiliar with. And so Pastor Lance walked us through the new paradigms that helped us to define the terms, the history, and a modern survey of the history, and to see the differences between the percentages versus the perception when it comes to the LGBTQ. We talked about where does same-sex attraction come from, and Pastor Lance talked, talked about his continuum, those six categories, which you actually have with you tonight, because we're going to be coming back to that. Pastor Lance walked us through what current science is saying and what it's not saying or confirming. And he talked about everything from genes to hormones, epigenetics, the psychological world. And we also talked about the malleability scale. And then we had Char Blair that gave her testimony in the end. That was only night one. Then in our second night, we went through and we talked again about the biblical landscape that we're often very aware of, but not fully familiar with. And we, we went through the biblical examination, looking at those three types of stories, extreme wickedness stories, the rules and regulations of Levitical law, the depravity of man passages. And then Pastor Lance walked us through God's created intent when it comes to creation and what happened with distortion. And then what was said in scripture about the restrictions with sexuality. And Pastor Lance walked us through the biblical, uh, a balanced biblical view on sexuality and what the Bible is relatively clear on and how absurd it can become when sinners are trying to order sin by importance. And then most importantly, we talked about how does God deal with brokenness and sin across the board? And then Carl Conley came and gave his testimony. That was week two. Last week, we went through the gender identity and engaging with the new era, and Pastor Lance walked us through gender identity and the transgender phenomenon, and we talked about the difference between feelings and the confusing biology of human beings, and Pastor Lance walked us through that, and that led into us talking about the impact of current LGBTQ um, issues and dynamics, and that led us into Pastor Lance leading us through the bigger picture of identity and the importance of gender and the danger that can happen if people decide to make a permanent change. And then Pastor Lance walked us through a demand for rethinking gender stereotypes and that whole list and how that helps us um, find a foundation for how we approach this. And so tonight we're walking into the what do we do? And that's one of the most important conversations. So let me pray for us and then we'll call Pastor Lance up. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for being the God of creation, the God of the universe, and the God that loves us with everything enough that you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to die, to shed his blood, to forgive us of our sins, and that, God, you care about us not only understanding but living lives, Lord, that reflect your love. And so, God, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for Pastor Lance as he preaches to us, as he teaches us, that, God, you would guide us in understanding, Lord, and that you would form and transform us as individuals that are, are people in this church and in this region and in this, in this community, Lord, that can dialogue with that convicted civility, Lord, with that courage, with that humility, Lord, of these things so that your kingdom, Lord, would come, so that people would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we pray that you would be honored and praised throughout every portion of tonight and the things that follow. And so, God, we love you, and we ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And would you please invite to the stage Pastor Lance Hahn.
Well, hello everyone once again. We have some uh, challenging material for you, but I think it will also help to answer a number of questions. So I'm going to dive right into it since we have so much to go through. So we'll begin with this. We, the church, we need to repent. We need to repent for the poor job that we have done loving and guiding the LGBTQ community, both within the church and outside the church. Now, personally, I have known a tremendous amount of people in the LGBTQ community that have extensive church background. The problem is, is that they have been trained that in order to grapple with their sexual identity, they have to go somewhere else to do it. That they're not allowed to sort things out within the church context. We have driven them away and told them, if you wanna figure it out, go figure it out somewhere else, get fixed, and then come back. That is not how it should be done. That is not how the Lord would have handled it. The more and more that we put pressure and say, you need to go solve your own problems, the more we run into difficult situations like what happened back with the Oral Roberts family. I know many of you are probably familiar with the, the popular televangelist back in the day, Oral Roberts, began Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, maybe you didn't know some of the stuff going on behind the scenes. We have a number of our staff that have been connected out through that university, and they knew about that uh, only because they looked into it. But a lot of this was hidden and shoved away. But maybe you don't know, so let me remind you. Oral Roberts' eldest son was Ronald. Ronald, at the time when everything was popular, he was married to a woman named Carol, and they had two adopted children, Rachel and Damon. He was being groomed to take over the ministry from his dad. His dad was gone a lot. They were disconnected. They didn't talk about problems. What the dad refused to talk about was the issue that Ronald was gay, even though he was married. Uh, he denied it. Everyone, the whole family denied it. Everyone started covering it up. Then he started taking prescription drugs. Then he separated from his wife. And then in 1982, at the age of 37, he shot himself with a gun and killed himself. Um, Oral Roberts' grandson, the son of Oral Roberts' youngest daughter, Roberta, has two gay sons. Randy Roberts Potts was married with three kids. Uh, Randy's brother, of course, is also gay. Randy was sexually abused by a family member. Uh, he divorced his wife after 11 years of marriage. He's now married to a man. His main goal now is to be a vocal support and leader for the LGBTQ movement, and his view of church is not very good. Okay, so the more and more that we have stuff going on in our family, understand this is our family. If you're wrestling with this stuff and you... Uh, have a heart for the Lord, or you have a desire to walk with Jesus, or you would define yourself as a Christian, you are my family. If our family has something that we need to talk about, we need to be able to talk about it within the church. We don't need to shove it underground. We don't need to say, you need to go handle your own problems. That is inappropriate. The church is here for problems. We're here for mess. So I just want to make sure that whether it's Bridgeway or any other churches that are that are listening to this and learning from this, I would just hope that for all of them that they are saying, I want you to talk to me. I don't want you to run away. 
We need to minister more effectively and more appropriately. In order to do that, I would like to review the uh, continuum that we handed to you uh, before. Um, we have some of those on your tables. If we could go back through the continuum with a Christian lens, that there are six distinct groups. Remember, this is a pseudo-theory. This is not proven in a lab. This is not something anyone else is talking about. This is something that through the counseling I've done, through the ministry that I've done, that I've come up with. So once again, if you go, wow, this, this isn't correct, or we could attack this, you're probably right. This is the best shot that I have at it. But it's something that I'm observing, and I think it's very important. Because what we have, if we don't look at it through the lens of these six distinct groups, here's what we have. A stubborn world and an immovable church right? A stubborn world and an immovable church. The stubborn world will only look at one category. It's the far left, and they're going to say, everybody is born that way. It's a civil rights issue. There's no fear of it rubbing off on anybody, and they're addressing education issues, legal issues, by going, it's just like the color of our eyes. There is no way we have any choice in the matter. Therefore, we completely affirm adoption and everything else, and the world can only see one category. However, on the other side, you have an immovable church, a church that's unwilling to... All they say is that it's, it's a choice, it's, it's depraved, it's, it's the sin of the world, it's distorting our youngsters, it's corrupting our land with sinful desires, and all we have is two stubborn people shouting across picket lines, and nothing is getting accomplished. The problem is both sides are motivated by fear. If I give any inch or I have any conversation, everything I've built is going to come falling down. The world is going to say I fought for rights, I fought for equality. If I say anything other, everyone's going to poke holes in that and they're going to start saying that I'm not right. The church says if we have any discussions other than it's a choice, then suddenly our whole theology collapses. Y'all, neither one of those are correct. Fear cannot be the motivator for our conversations. Either we're looking for truth or we're not looking for truth. We can't just hide because it's scary to talk about. So what I want to do is understand the complexity we need to have more dialogue. We gotta tailor our ministry appropriately. We need to consider the methods of our ministry, the style of our ministry to each group individually and uniquely. So let's go through them one at a time. The first category, starting from your far left, is ministering to those that are born that way. Now, whatever you want to define that as, that some of us in this room are still struggling the idea that God would have someone born that way. I, that's, that, question has been settled in my mind a long, long time ago. Whatever you want to define it as, somebody is saying, I've never known otherwise. This is the only way I know how to be. How do we minister to that particular group? That's us. What do we do? How do we minister rightly? Well, I believe that compassion, I think, is important. I think that we need to partner with them in realizing this was not their idea. They didn't come up with something. Ministry needs to be focused more on re-identification, acceptance by God, love and grace in the journey, education discussions, and a long, long walk together toward wholeness, realizing that it's possible there may never be freedom from carrying this particular cross, but that Christ can be honored significantly within each life. 
no matter what we struggle with. The second group, ministering to those that I would define as bent by evil, if you remember those are things such as trauma, molestation, things like that, abuse. Ministry to this group is a similar fashion to all abuse ministries, right? So we operate in compassion and we operate in healing. They didn't ask to be abused. They didn't ask for complications. They don't need more condemnation. They don't need more blame. They need love, affirmation, covering, care, freedom, and prayer. It's about letting God right the wrongs that mankind has wrought upon them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Our only job is to assist in the process they have with God and have compassion when they don't want to work on it right now. Y'all understand what I'm talking about? Isn't it interesting we always want to tell people how quickly they need to heal? Well, you need to hurry up and fix yourself. Y'all, I think that we need to worry about the log in our own eye rather than the speck in somebody else's eye, yeah? The third category over, ministering to those bent by environment. There's so much confusion in this arena. It may feel like in their own hearts, I was born this way, but looking back, sometimes you go, wait, wait, wait. There's something there. There's something relatively clear. There's indicators that something altered me in a sexual development process. So what do we do as ministers? Our ministry is coming from a compassion perspective, knowing that they didn't ask to be born and raised in the environment they were, have the friends that they originally had. They don't know what to do or how to change anything about it. But here's what's important. What's done is not done in Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just because something happened to us does not mean that's the end of the story. God knows how to remake. God knows how to refashion. So again, this is primarily about re-identification in who we are in the Lord, what he has made in us, and we seek for his realignment and his healing. The next category over is bent by affirmation. If you remember, that's the desire for love so desperately. Who will receive me? Who will take care of me? Where, where can I belong? How do we minister to that group? Anyone struggling in this area needs to be loved and accepted as they are. Unfortunately, it is here that the church is weakest, right? We reject people until they clean up. What drove them there in the first place was rejection. The more rejection the church continues to do, the further we drive people away. It's not how Jesus did it. The church and all believers need to be those safe places, the houses of love to care for and be patient with the transformation God has for them. If they are truly in this category, then change is not only possible, it's probable over time. But it takes a long time depending on how ingrained it is. So we need patience. The next category over is works best for me, and that was the one where we're now starting to go heavily into the choice portion of this, where someone would say, you know what? I'm done with guys. They hurt me. I'm going to go ahead and spend my time with women, or I'm tired of women rejecting me. I'm going to spend my time with men. Those types of conversations. If we're in that category, although this is the first category that church and Christians can start to talk about taking some control over their lives and engaging in the process of renewal, it still has to be done that something pushed them there. If something pushed them there, our goal isn't to chase them away. Our goal is to be safe enough so they can consider that God may have something more for them. 
They don't owe us anything. They don't need to change for us. This is about them and the Lord. We're simply the community of help and assistance to them. Go all the way to the right in your continuum, and this is ministering to those involved due to simply sex. This is those that just say, you know what, this is something that I want to be involved in for whatever reason. This group can be ministered to in the same way you would deal with anyone with sexual issues, right? I mean, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter. We're talking about the same thing. Depending on your level of relationship and personality, you can express the need for them to make healthier choices, right? They might not even realize the significant ramifications of their choices, so it's best to ask a lot more questions first than start firing out advice, right? Once again, be very careful of the plank in your own eye before we look at the speck in somebody else's eye. But let's get down to the heart of it. When there is homosexual sexual activity going on, and you're like, yep, I knew it, I dug into it, and this is what's really going on. Yep, there's, there's sin there, right? Let's say that we come to that understanding, that there's sexual immorality because it's not within the bounds of marriage. Let's say that that's a situation. What do you do? Here's what's really interesting, is Jesus showed us exactly what to do. What do I mean? Well, it comes in a story in John chapter 8. The proper position of the church in dealing with sin of any sort is what? The woman caught in adultery. How did Jesus handle it? It was blatant. It was clear. What did he do? The first thing he did was step into a protection mentality. He stepped in front of the rocks. What do you mean? Well, here's the story. If you don't know the story, a woman was caught in adultery. They were trying to trap Jesus. They throw her down before Jesus, and they said, hey, if we're talking about righteousness, the law says we can stone her to death. And Jesus said, you're absolutely right. That is what the law said. So whoever doesn't have any sin in their life gets to throw the first rock. And everybody left. What was he doing? He was placing himself in front of the rocks. Why? Because you can really tick off a mob that has a bunch of rocks. He stood right in front of it and he made everyone go away. And he said, I'm going to have a personal conversation with my child. Do you understand? This isn't a group conversation. This is not hurling somebody out in front of somebody else. This is between you and me. Okay, look, honey, everybody's gone now. And now it's you and me. And what did he do? He knelt down and he said, hon, you have to understand, we can walk this out. But if it's not best for you, it's not best for you. And I'm not going to say it is. I need you to make some changes, but we can do it together. How beautiful of a perspective. I believe that is indeed the role of the church. But it's very important when we're talking about ministry of any sort to what? Determine our role and relational effectiveness. Determine our role and relational effectiveness. What can we do and what should we do, right? Who? What is our responsibility? Uh, for example, the church is not the moral police of the world. I know we feel like we are, but we're not. We are the indwelt by the Holy Spirit, salt and light of the world, to show everyone that Jesus matters and that God is to be worshipped. The light in you is not a flashlight for someone else's sin. The light in you is a light on a hill 
that is warming and clear and draws people. That's the light that's in you. Christianity is not mere sin management, right? Christianity is about a new state of living in grace and being drawn and formed into the holy image of Jesus Christ. Driving someone to change the outside of them so they now fit into your area is totally inappropriate. All transformation done by Jesus Christ is from the inside out. As a matter of fact, the last thing that should change in a person is the outer shell. It should start inside. If someone tries to put on more masks just so they can hang out with you, we've done something wrong. We want them to be who they are and either we're transformed or we're not transformed, but we need to be who we are. That's kind of the goal. But I do have a question for you. Why, and I'm gonna talk about Christians in general, this may apply to you, it may not. Why are Christians so obsessed with this issue? Doesn't it seem a little weird? It's like, oh my gosh, we get all rallied up. I don't see anybody like picketing Wall Street for greed. That's, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a big deal. And yet it's happening every day. I don't, I don't see anybody staying, standing at hometown buffet with a gluttony sign. You know what I mean? I mean, it's this idea that all of a sudden Christians are all obsessed about homosexuality. Why do you care so much? There's something going on that has now triggered you, and I'm not sure what it is, but it's like, oh my gosh, that, that, well, that's bad. Okay, what about lying? We're not getting fired up about a whole bunch of other stuff. Why are we getting fired up about this? I just need you to ask the question, why do you care so much? Why is it stirring in you what it's stirring in you? It's just a fair question. So let's jump right to the heart of the things, right? Everybody wants to know what about change. Can someone change their sexuality? Because isn't that, isn't that the whole heart of it, right? Everyone wants to look, oh, can you change, can you change, can you change, right? Here's the reality. It's not a simple question, nor is it a simple answer. Something this complex involves every aspect of a human being. What do I mean? Spiritual, mental, sexual, emotional, physical, and it goes on and on and on. It's a big deal. Now, I will tell you this. Let's talk about the danger of trying to change someone inappropriately, right? If we're going to talk about change, we've tried a lot of stuff throughout history, right? There is a danger in trying to change someone's sexuality inappropriately. Let's talk about the historic fails so far. Stuffing it. How has that worked? Not good. Shock therapy. That's not good. Shaming it. Nope. Living a lie. Nope. The unhealthy mode of reparative therapy. Nope. Chemical castration. Nope. Insane asylums. Nope. Automatic demon casting. Nope. Pressuring heterosexual marriages. Nope. Y'all... I could go on and on about attempts, but anything that is done without the Lord, it's going to be a tough call, right? I think that that's very important. Now, there are healthier views of what's called SOCH or sexual orientation change efforts, S-O-C-E. Now, these became popular in the news because in, since 1994, 13 major organizations have publicly renounced it. 
that's what you would think of as what? Reparative therapy. Uh, everything from the President of the United States to all the way across major health organizations, the APA, everybody is going, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. A prime example was AB 2943 that was brought up in in 2018. That was a, a law that was presented here in our capital. Here's what it said. Sexual orientation change efforts are banned if the client or person is being charged money for it under the Unlawful Business Practices and Consumer Legal Remedies Act. Evan Lowe presented that. A gentleman that is openly gay himself, he presented it out and said, I want it illegal across the board. Well, the church freaked out. Why? Because we have ministries that we end up talking to people about change. And he said, if at any time that is like a counseling issue where someone is paying for therapy, it's outlawed and banned. Well, the church went ballistic. A bunch of pastors that actually had their heads screwed on straight met with Mr. Lowe, Evan Lowe. And there's a whole documentary you can see. There's some videos online. They met with him and they said, sir, I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to protect people because I think we can all agree that a forced change effort on somebody else is always a bad idea. Can we agree? We know what you're trying to do. Here's the problem. When you ban or outlaw the church from doing its ministry, everyone loses. Here's what's crazy about it. So Evan Lowe, who is not a believer, had that law passed. And then he pulled it and shut it down because he said, I need to go back to the drawing board because if what I'm hearing is true, I don't want to hurt anyone. Okay, that's crazy cool, right? Now all of a sudden you have two sides talking and saying, I don't want bad things for anybody. All right. Now, Scientifically, when, remember I told you that nowadays in our DSM manuals and the APA, they say same-sex attraction is only a problem if you think it's a problem. But let's say you do think it's a problem and you go, I don't like this, I don't want this. What hope does science give you? Well, the only hope that we have right now, according to science, is neuroplasticity. What does it mean? It means that the more we study the brain, we realize that it maps and remaps itself throughout life. For example, if somebody has a stroke, then the, the body physically has to redesign and map. If something shuts down, it starts going around it. Our brains are not as fixed as we would like to believe, and in some ways that's encouraging because it means that our brains can remap a lot of stuff. Can it remap in this area? They don't know. But that's the only hope that science has. However, I would suggest to you that there's more hope than that. In 2009, an organization called NARTH, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, released their report, 2009, Volume 1 of the Journal of Human Sexuality responded to the APA's claims on homosexuality. And they came out and said, you know what? From our reports, the APA is wrong. There is healthy ways to talk about this stuff. There is healthy ways to work through these things. Not everything has to be bad. As a matter of fact, there's a new approach that has emerged out called reintegrative therapy. It primarily works with trauma. 
It works with parental issues. It works with hurts of the past. And what it's saying is let's get all the stuff out in counseling and let's see what God does. And it puts things back together. But here's the reality. We're dealing with human beings. What's interesting about all studies about whether something works or not, you're talking about human beings that change all the time. For example, Exodus International, right? Exodus International for a long time was like the flagship of the ex-gay movement, right? You know, uh, Exodus International was the only one on the scene. They were talking to everybody about you can be ex-gay and you can get out of that and everything. And then at some point, their leadership stops everything and goes, yeah, we don't believe in that anymore. Okay, well, when people are flip-flopping all the time, nobody knows what's real. What about the testimonies that happened along the way? You have Johns Hopkins saying, we're going to do a sexual reassignment surgery. No, we're not. Now we are. When you have everybody changing and everything moving, no one knows what's true. So when we analyze results, when we analyze what's possible, it's almost impossible to tell. But I'll tell you this, if you want to go right back into my camp, I want to tell you what God can do. I believe in transformation. I believe in healing. I believe in hope. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is a very critical passage. It may not say what you think it says, but it certainly says something glorious. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Everyone wants to stop there. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's what I believe. I believe that anyone walking through this is loved extraordinarily by God. And I think that he does extraordinary things for his children. However, here's what it didn't say. It didn't say, and after you hung out with Jesus, everything got easy for you. It didn't say that all the temptations and passions went away. It didn't say, and now you don't have a struggle. It didn't say any of that. What it said was, listen, what is going on in your past, what is going on in your life right now is not beyond the forgiveness and cleansing of Jesus Christ. It says that there can be relationship with God, and it said, you know what? That still means things can be very, very difficult. As a matter of fact, there's grace for us as we're sorting it out. The Holy Spirit's helping everyone align our lifestyles to match our nature inside. But once we are cleansed, what we do next with our forgiveness and grace involves decision-making, right? But nothing's beyond God's forgiveness. That brings us to 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, quote, I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or you do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's a command. Glorify God in your body. I'm going to tell you right now, anyone that is willing to be honest, homosexual or heterosexual, you all deal with temptations every day. And there's a bunch of stuff that you feel every day. We have marriages falling apart everywhere. We have infidelity. We have all kinds of challenges. That's just in the heterosexual world, right? So you're dealing with all this stuff. And what God said is he said, listen, I saved you. And I need you to use all of your stuff and steward it well and honor me and glorify me, whatever that means. That's where our head needs to be. But here's what's so difficult. The statistics are sobering about people being able to see significant change in their sexual attraction. It's difficult to hear if you're someone who's struggling, if you love someone who's struggling. The reality is, is that not all people are transformed the way they want to be, especially the deeper the cause is, the deeper the root is. It's rare that full transformation occurs. It's similar to deep addiction. It's similar to foundational identity issues. A life free of temptation or desire is only found in a radical, miraculous healing from God. Otherwise, it's walking it out one day at a time. So what do we do with God allowing something so difficult? What do we do when that's remaining in our hearts? What do we do when we hear God calling us to one thing and we just don't feel that? We cry out to him and we pray and we pray and we pray and nothing changes. What do you do with that? We put it right alongside all the challenges and suffering that we have. For some of us that have been in Celebrate Recovery or Alcoholics Anonymous, some of us have to say that we're alcoholics and we're always going to wrestle with alcoholism. Some of us that have lifelong anxiety, some of us that have lifelong depression, we didn't ask for this. It is what it is. But here's my point. The weight of a cross. Remember I told you the phrase, at least compassion? What would you do if your friend's spouse was in a terrible car accident? They were paralyzed from the neck down, and you realized they were never going to have sexual fulfillment in their marriage again. What would happen? What would you do? Wouldn't your heart go out to them? What if you found out your best friend was called by God to go into an area of the world on a mission trip or a mission for the rest of their life where due to societal reasons would never allow them to marry ever again? Wouldn't you realize that that's difficult? What about a handicap that makes someone unable to find a life mate? Shouldn't we at least have compassion for our family and friends that are struggling? Why all the anger and judgment? Why not compassion, love? Why not prayer? Why is anger our first response? It's just odd. 
I believe in hopeful change in Jesus Christ. What do I mean? Well, let's talk about the honest reality, right? Here we go. The rate of success results. Stanton Jones, he did a study of Exodus International back in the day. He he, he examined 98 people that went through that ministry. And here's what he found out. Participants fell into multiple categories. I'm only going to mention four of them. 15% had full conversion from homosexual same-sex attraction to heterosexual attraction. 23% had enough of it lowering down to where they felt peaceful to be by themselves. 29% were called a continuing change effort. There was some reduction in attraction, but not enough to say that they had any true success and 27% had no change at all. That's the sobering statistics. Here's what's interesting. Stanton Jones examined those same people six and seven years later and found out that the transformation that occurred stuck. Mark Yarhouse of Regent University, who is now transferred over, he's done so much work in this area. Mark Yarhouse found the exact same statistics. He calls it the 30-30-30 principle. Here's what he found out. In any healthy ministry, you would see 30% see significant change, 30% see some change, and 30% see little to no change. But the fact remains that many have been transformed. Please do not allow statistics to dictate your narrative. You understand what I'm talking about? If you go, I am uncomfortable where where I'm at. I don't want same-sex attraction. Don't let statistics tell you what can or cannot happen. I believe that hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people have seen true transformation. I also believe every report that says tons of people have received no change whatsoever. So why are we getting such vastly different responses? I'm going to share my opinion, right? I'm not a scientist. I'm going to share my opinion. Of course, since I'm sharing it, I think I'm right. Here's my point. Any possible change is highly reliant on both cause and the desired outcome. What does that mean? It means I believe the Christian ministry reports that lots of people change and the secular reports about changes being drastic failures. But why? I think it has to do with what you want to happen and who you're working with. Here's my list. If the root of it is an epigenetic alteration, I think that normal change efforts are going to be minimally ineffective. No way. They're just not going to work very well. If the root is abuse, environment, identity, or preference, I think you're going to see tremendous results. If therapy is done with a willing participant, you're going to see much better results. If it's forced on someone, you're going to see terrible results. Once again, parents, people in power, can you be very careful When you pressure someone to get change, every therapist will tell you this, they cannot work with someone that is not willing to be worked with. You can't force someone into therapy and have it do any good. Be very careful on that. Here's the other thing. If the change attempt is done with the Lord, you're going to see higher statistics. If it's done without the Lord, you're going to see lower statistics. But here's the question. What are you trying to change? What are your expectations? 
If someone's going to examine you and you go through a ministry and they go, are you all better now? Right? Isn't that what we do? Can you just fill out this poll? You all fixed now? What are you looking to do? If you go into a ministry and say, I'm struggling with feeling not okay in my body. What do you think is going to happen in therapy? Well, I want you to fix me. Is that a thing? You see, if our expectation is no more problems, if our expectation is no more challenge, if our expectation is I feel awesome all the time, that's not a realistic expectation. If our expectation is, Lord, please help me to process this in a healthy way. Lord, please help me to walk forward. Lord, please help me not to fall into despair. Lord, please help me to have strength and confidence and boldness. Please help me to love you more than my pain. Right? If that's your expectation, it's going to go great. But here's the deal. If you look at that continuum, once again, that I had talked about, in that continuum, you're going to have different stats. But all they're, when they're examining in general change efforts, they're lumping them all together. I would suggest to you that if you took one sliver, you're going to have a very strong stat. But if you take another sliver, you're going to have a dismal stat. But when you push them all together, it looks like the 30-30-30 principle. All right. Here's the deal. What are we trying to change? Is it possible that some of what we want to change... God put there on purpose. What do I mean? I mean, if we're trying to say, man, as a woman, I feel like a tomboy. I'd rather hang out with the guys. I'd rather do that kind of stuff. Do you understand there's beauty in that? I don't think Jesus wants that to change. I think it's wonderful. Remember last time when we met, we were talking about trying to expand our gender stereotypes, right? And we were talking about, can we give people a little bit more room to move around and to live? Great, we're not trying to shift your personality. Please don't, well, I'm introverted and I'm scared all the time and I'm hurt, I, I just wanna be bold and I wanna be outgoing. That's not a thing, right? And then the last thing I'll say on that is Jesus transforms people, we don't, right? Because we're always looking and we're going, who fixed you, who fixed you? Nobody fixes each other, Jesus transforms people and he does so as he wishes right? So let's get into the heart of it. There are four areas when you say, what do we do with all this? I think there are four very distinct areas we need to address to have a proper Christian response. I'm going to go through them one at a time, but let me just share what four there are. The first one is engaging with the world. Number two is functioning as a church. Number three is what do I do with myself? And number four, how do I minister rightly to my loved ones? Aren't these the areas we really want to know about? All right, let's jump into those. Let's begin with the first one, engaging with the world. What do we as the church do with members of the LGBTQ community who are not believers in God and have a very different worldview than we do? What are we supposed to do? Be nice. Be nice. Yeah. First thing you have to understand is this. Christianity in today's worldview is seen as harmful. You're starting behind the eight ball. As a matter of fact, popular culture has defined Christianity as hate mongering. They've defined Christianity as dangerous. They've told you don't ever go near a church because that's where all those people try to change you. That's where all those people are mean and nasty to you. So why in the world would they ever want to be near a Christian? 
As a matter of fact, I was watching uh, Hawaii Five O the other day, modern version, right? I think the old one was cheesy, new one's cheesier, right? I'm not proud of this. I'm just telling you facts, right? I was watching Hawaii Five O, which is simply a whole attractive group of people doing some type of police work. And it was season nine, episode 14. I would tell you the name of the episode, but I can't pronounce it. It's in Hawaiian. And this was the story. Uh, they're the 5-0 task force. They're above the law, right? So they answer only to the mayor or the governor or whoever the heck they answer to. And so they can do anything and everything. So um, they're trying to examine this murder that happens and they track it down. And the guy um, that was murdered, he was gay. And so they find out, well, he had just given some money to this young girl, and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, he's given money to this young girl, maybe they're in a relationship and everything. Well, when they find out he's gay, they're like, okay, so that's not really it. They track down the girl, they bring her in, and they said, why'd you kill him? What's going on with you two? She said, my parents were forcing me to go to Idaho because they're religious, to go get forced in, I'm lesbian, and they're forcing me to go into a change reparative therapy thing, and he was giving me money to escape because he's my counselor. And they said, that can't be true. And she said, bring my parents in, they'll tell you. Brings in the parents, and they said, we just want the gay out. We'll pray it out, we'll force it out. Now all of a sudden you have Christians, allegedly, in the room and the 5-0 task force said, you will never touch your daughter again. You'll never get near her again. We will use all the power that we have to shut you down and you will never see your daughter again because you're evil. All right, you're working from behind the eight ball, y'all. When you go walking out and you're like, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm scared of you. Something's wrong with you. If the 5-0 task force has to hide me from you, you're probably pretty bad. So in other words, in order to start any conversation, you have to have relationship. And we just simply don't. And I wanna help you understand the pride factor, right? I mean, cause isn't this a big thing? This is what I hear all the time. Why is the LGBTQ community shoving their, their agenda in everyone's faces? That's what I get a lot, right? Why is they shoving it in everyone's faces? You want the quick answer? It's an overreaction to past abuse and needing to gain some space to live and sort things out. That's why. As we saw in week one, we studied LGBTQ history. Being gay has had a rough history for folks. So let me just say this. In one respect, the gay pride is our responsibility. What do you mean? We forced it. And when I say we, I mean heterosexuals. Heterosexuals forced gay pride. When you have mistreatment over a long enough time, you have overreaction, defensiveness, and overcorrection. Pride came from bullying. I'm not saying that it should be embraced like it's being embraced today, but I do know that hatred, violence, threats, and general meanness created what you see today. That's what I know. Let's go back through the history. Once again, there's more of this in the resources, but let me just hit the highlights. Prior to World War I, World War II, the LGBTQ community had to be in hiding. Then when they came out in the 50s and 60s, they were violently harassed and they were harmed. So in 1968, as a response, Frank Kameny, a gay civil rights promoter, came up with the concept, gay is good. You know where he got that from? Stokely Carmichael in the black civil rights movement who said black is beautiful. 
So he said, wait a second, that's kind of what we're trying to say. We're trying to react off people. So let's use the phrase gay is good. But everything changed in June of 1969 with the Stonewall riots, right? The police raid that they were allowed to arrest anyone that did not have three articles of clothing of proper gender on. That's kind of a weird law. So they were rallying up, they were grabbing people and throwing them and arresting them because they were LGBTQ. Well, people rioted and it ended up endangering the police. The police had to hide out in there and they were breaking through the wall and it was all kinds of rioting. Now, here's what's interesting. It was all this reaction to, you can't just throw us in jail. You can't just beat us up. You can't do that. I'm so tired of being beat up. They reacted way over the top. And check out this quote from Frank Kameny. By the time of Stonewall, we had 50 to 60 gay groups in the country. A year later, there were at least 1,500. Two years later, to the extent that could be counted, there was 2,500. It went from 50 to 2,500 from that incident. What do you think started gay pride? First one happened called the Christopher Street Liberation Day in 1969 because it was on that street was where Stonewall was, and it was the last Saturday of the month of June. Sure enough, first gay pride march on New York City, June 28, 1970. Do you realize that initially it was super radical? It was so much of a reaction, I'm tired of being shoved down, that now I'm going to shove it in your face. It was so radical that even members of the LGBTQ community said, you guys, we need to mellow out and they took it off. It used to be called the Gay Liberation and Freedom Movement, and they said, let's just call it Gay Pride. And they calmed it down because they thought it was too extreme. So, let's answer the question again. How do I, a Christian, act towards a non-Christian? You gotta remember, there's a bunch of Christians in the LGBTQ community. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about how do I, a Christian, act towards the non-Christian LGBTQ population in general? What do I do? You guys ready? Here we go. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you uh, five things. It starts out with this. First one, this is not the first one, but this is the, the, the overarching principle. Ready? The Christian mandate is what? Agape. What's agape? This is what Jesus said we have to do, agape. It's others-focused, sacrificial love. It's God kind of love. So I'm going to give you five things that that really means. Number one, empathy. Empathy. The ability to understand and share feelings with other people. In order to have the level of compassion that God requires, we have to get in other people's shoes and start saying, how would I feel if this is what was going on in my life? So number one, empathy. Number two, honor. Honor. Any demeaning of someone's value or mean-spirited comments has no place coming from a Christian. Why? Due to the inherent priceless value of human beings, due to the image of God, we honor and treat all human beings with respect. Number three, meaningful truth. Meaningful truth. Truth is loving, and it's not always easy. We're allowed to speak the truth. We're allowed to talk about the truth. However, to share random truth is not helpful. Just throwing out stats at people is not helpful. It has to be meaningful truth. Do you even have a relationship to share meaningful truth? If you don't, you might not want to say a whole lot. It has to be truth in a way they can understand. However, it's always best if you can help them discover the truth for themselves, as opposed to just telling somebody something. Number four, 
relationship. Christian love is not toleration. It is not avoidance. Christian love is connective. It promotes community. It's involvement in lives as much as they're willing or desirous of. And number five, patience and perseverance. Patience and perseverance. People are messy. Transformation is slow. A glacier's pace is probably accurate, right? Super slow. We need to allow process to have its way and be patient as the Lord does the deep work. Even if you don't see any change, you got to stay in there. All of those elements are present in the testimony we're about to hear in a moment. Be listening for those. Okay, so what about communicating at crossroads? Let's say it's aggressive. It's this worldview versus this worldview. I'm a Christian. This is a secular LGBTQ movement, and I'm going head to head. What do we do there when we're at odds, when we're not going to just agree and you can kind of go, well, let's just agree to disagree. What if it's a confrontation? What do we do? Well, let me ask you this. Whose nation is America? Whose nation is America? Do we have the right to legislate morality? Is America a Christian nation or a secular nation? Not what you want. What is it? It's a secular nation. There are differences in ethics. The Christian, we try to promote a Judeo-Christian worldview and a biblical ethic. That is not what society promotes. Society's current sexual ethical codes, there's three of them. You ready? Do what you want, but don't hurt anybody. Number two, consent makes it okay. And number three, don't question someone else's life choices. That's what the world says. We don't believe that. So what happens when this view collides with this view? I got another question for you. Do you want religious law or religious freedom? Do you want religious law or religious freedom? Because here's why. You got to figure out what you really want. Most of us want the government to mandate Christianity because we're Christians. But if you're not a Christian, that's super scary. Think about it this way. What if our government, which in my opinion is secular, decides to adopt a primarily extremist Muslim view? Do you want that same mandate coming out on you? Do you still... See, are you only pro that because you're a Christian and currently they can favor Christian views? Or do you always want religious freedom? Huh. When we are sorting specific legal issues, how do we want our nation run? Well, clearly, if you're a Christian, you want it run with Christian principles, right? I mean, I'm going to be the one that's always hoping and hoping and hoping and going, God, come on and praying about our nation, right? Because I want the biblical view to be out in the nation. We're allowed to want that, and I'm going to vote that way because that's my part. That as a, an American citizen, I'm going to say, I want Christian ideals to be in play. So I'm going to vote that way. But just understand, that's a little different than saying, I want you to force everyone to be Christian. It's different. So let's talk about wrestling with gay marriage, right? Regardless of where you stand with a gay marriage debate, right? The reason the church got so freaked out by it was because it started hitting a core principle of Christianity, which is what? That God builds his society on the family unit, when you start pulling apart the family unit, you start having a breakdown in society. So let's say you are pro-gay marriage. I just want to caution you. If we say, 
Well, because I want that, I want to completely deteriorate and pull apart all family structure so I can have room to live. I think that's very dangerous, right? Because that's something that God instituted and he's building upon. So if I'm going to talk about gay marriage, I'm going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, now you're starting to step into something that I think is very important from God, and so I'm going to have more resistance there, right? Respectful resistance, but resistance. But while we're talking about marriage, I want to be very clear on something, because when the gay marriage debate came out, the church started sounding a little weird. Why? Because they're like, how dare you ruin the sanctity of marriage, right? Isn't that what we all said? How dare you ruin the sanctity of marriage, right? Okay, a healthy community is vital for everybody and family is God's building block for a society. However, we have a little bit of a weird cult of marriage going on in the church. What do I mean? You're gonna ruin the sanctity of marriage. Y'all, I've looked at your marriages and you don't have a leg to stand on. Who's ruining the purity of marriage? Are we sure it's the homosexual community or is it the heterosexual community? Because here's the crazy thing. If we're going to talk about the heterosexual community, we're going to talk about high divorce rates. We're going to talk about our marriages splitting and everything that's going on in our home is not honoring to the Lord. So what is this purity of marriage that we're yelling at other people about? This was one of those, wow, we got a big old log sticking out of our own eye. And we're like, oh, don't mess with the purity of God's marriage. How about we don't mess with the purity of God's marriage, right? And here's the other odd thing. In the church, we start going, well, everyone's got to be married and you got to, you know, and, that, and that's the most important thing. And we kind of go, well, if you're, the church is kind of geared and designed towards married people and the single people feel left out and everything. Here's what I think that's so weird about that. Christianity is designed on Jesus Christ. Was he married? No. The greatest evangelist that wrote majority of all the New Testament books was Paul the Apostle. Was he married? No, he wasn't. How strange that Christianity has become so obsessed with marriage when, in fact, the maiden dudes were single. Why is that important? Because if we continue this idea that the only way to be fulfilled is to be married, then what are you telling everybody that can't get married? Do you understand how you just backed yourself into a corner? If we can start talking about the healthiness of community and love, and that singleness can be whole, and that Jesus Christ wasn't lacking, and that Paul the Apostle wasn't lacking, and they were filled up, and they knew who they were in Jesus, and they lived full, powerful lives, maybe we'd have a better argument when someone says, you're telling me that I can't be married just because I'm same-sex attracted? Well, yeah. Well, then what are you telling me I should be? Because in your church, it sure looks like the only people that are fulfilled are married people. Ah, that's where we lose the argument. Hmm. Here's the deal. A guy named Dale Keene gave this insight. He said, in the absence of love in and from the church, people are looking for love anywhere they can find it. Y'all, I really think we need to do better on the love thing all the way around. I think our single people here should be loved on. I think our married people should be loved on. I think that we should have healthy friendships. I think we should have men that know women as friends, and it doesn't have to be sexual. I think that women should be able to hang out with men and it not be sexual. I think that we've got to honor the Lord. 
But what about this? Let me get back to the issue. What about LGBTQ affirming legislation constantly coming through California, right? You're going to go, well, my worldview does not match with that secular worldview. What do we do with that? You ready? Here's my answer. We vote according to biblical standards. What does that mean? It means you actually have to read it and not react. It means that you have to look into the intent of the bill. You have to look into the ramifications of the proposal. You have to determine whether it's something that Jesus would sign off on. If it's protecting people from being harmed, you might want to vote for it. If it's affirming lifestyle choices, you may not. But the bottom line is you got to read through it carefully and you vote like Jesus. That's how it works. That's how we're supposed to handle it. So that's talking about the outside world. What about inside the church? Once again, we have a lot of inside the church people that are saying, listen, I'm LGBTQ. What are you going to do with me? We're talking about inside the church, not outside the church, right? I want to tell you that as functioning as a church, there are five levels of ministry involvement that I think that we need to talk about. Five levels of ministry involvement, and they progressively get more and more intense. Here we go. I need to know where you're at on this continuum. You ready? Number one, from hatred to tolerance. How should we handle as church members from hatred to tolerance? We got to move from, some of us have to move from disgust, condemnation, and contempt to actually tolerating that there are people who are different from us and that we all have value as creations of God. Nobody wants mere tolerance. It's a base level of decency. But the problem is there's still a lot of animosity from the church towards other people. So that's the first base level. We got to go from hatred to tolerance. Second level, we got to go from shock to focus. From shock to focus, from being overwhelmed by every LGBTQ story, experience, and discussion, to being able to listen to the speaker deeply and listen to what's going on underneath. For example, even examine your own things. Guys, I'm going to talk to you for a moment. There is something very strange in the fact that the idea of two girls sexually being together seems to be a turn-on to guys, but two guys together seems to be a problem. I just need us all to examine our hypocrisy, if that makes any sense, right? All right, we got to stop the looks of horror every time we hear something, and we got to move beyond distaste if we're going to do any ministry. Now, this is only for people that want to do ministry, right? If you want to be an active Christian building the kingdom of God, we got to walk through some of this, right? Let's go to level three, from willing ignorance to educated, we got to go from willing ignorance to educated. What do I mean? From constantly claiming naivete, being clueless, to actually knowing the facts. Being able to intelligently discuss topics, helping other people understand. In other words, we got to get rid of some gross exaggerations. For example, right? Uh, hey, you're gay. Do you all go to bathhouses? Okay, please, can, can no one ever say that again? That's not even a thing, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I've heard the statistics that, uh, that everybody has more than a thousand sexual partners. Is that true? Uh, no, that's not true. Do you remember the whole thing about just going, well, AIDS is a gay disease? Y'all, the church did not look really good in that season. We don't even know what we're talking about. We're speaking out of ignorance. So we got to move to level four. Level four is from loving ignorance to advancing ministry from accidentally and sweetly saying offensive things, right? We mean well, we just say offensive stuff all the time, 
to building relationships, doing effective ministry through love into our community, right? We've got to realize the phrase, hey, you know what? I'm good with you. I love the sinner, but I hate the sin, right? Or when you immediately walk up to somebody and you go, hey, we're all sinners. All you're doing is you're hearing the word sin get thrown out and thrown out and thrown out, and you don't realize what that feels like when they don't agree with your view, right? It's becoming savvy enough to walk with someone who identifies as LGBTQ and be a blessing to them at all times. It's moving from being distracted into a calm wisdom, unflappable, able to love purposely and strategically. And then there's a level five. But I need you to hear something. Because we are at Bridgeway, and I'm teaching this as Bridgeway's pastor, Bridgeway stops there. There is another level, and I'm going to talk about where that other level is. We do not go there. I do not believe that scripturally it's accurate to go to the next level, but other churches do. And I want to honor them by talking about that other level, right? Here's the other level. From compassion to affirmation. From compassion to affirmation. That is from being loving, relational, compassionate, and engaged to acceptance of gay theology views, affirming homosexual active lifestyles in the name of love. It's no longer thinking that homosexual sexual activity is a sin. It's fully affirming that it was created by God, affirmed by God, right? And you're like, well, who, who has that view? The Metropolitan Community Church, the Gay Christian Network, Mainline denominations, the United Church of Christ, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church USA. Affirming. They've made that choice. I want to talk about the fact that they've made that choice because they said we have now taken the next step. I'm just telling you that biblically, I do not think it's appropriate to take that step. Now, my heart, my love, because I love people so much, my love drives me to try to find an affirming position. I cannot in scripture. Just because I want to doesn't mean that it's right. So I have to call the line. Other people haven't, I have. That's where we stand. But we need to act like a mature church. We're failing to pastor LGBTQ people. We have to love without an agenda. Well, I'm going to be your friend and I'm going to be your buddy until you change enough. If you don't change fast enough, I'm out. That's not loving. That's just waiting people out, right? There is a common ground with every human being of brokenness, of going, hey, I'm still learning about Jesus. Are you? There is so much common ground. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to be together on. Why are we immediately running to the one area that we divide on? That's interesting to me. Now, I will say this. This stuff is splitting churches, right? How do I know that? Because while we were in this series, back in February 26th and 27th, the United Methodist Church voted on this issue. The United Methodist Church brought up two LGBTQ issues. They were voting on recognition and blessing of same-sex marriage, and ordination of LGBTQ clergy. Everyone expected it to shift. Those were both voted down. And there was a massive reaction that now they're gonna go back into it. But they're right in the middle of this whole thing. The denominations trying to figure out, do we split? 
on this issue. It's a big issue. I don't want it to split us. I want to make sure that we continue to be the lovers of people and the lovers of Christ. And so I want to be very clear about where we're at and what we're doing. Now, I will tell you this. There are three levels of church engagement. Three levels of church engagement. Every local church and denomination needs to think through these levels of engagement because here's the deal. People need to know what to expect when they're coming into the church. Is there a glass ceiling for them? Is there a place for them? Can they serve somewhere? Can they not serve somewhere? Can they be in leadership? Can they not be? I'm gonna tell you right now, at Bridgeway, it is a case-by-case basis. Why? Because same-sex attraction and homosexual sexual activity are not the same thing. Nor is someone identifying as LGBTQ who is soft-hearted and seeking the Lord the same as someone who is arrogantly and loudly trying to promote an agenda. Someone struggling is not in the same place as someone who has embraced the lifestyle. Someone flamboyant is not the same as someone who's withdrawn in private. Not all roles in church are treated the same, and nor should they be. So, we at Bridgeway do not believe that same-sex attraction carries any condemnation from the Lord, and it doesn't carry any condemnation from us either. Now, as with everything else, is there accountability and responsibility for decisions of lifestyle? Yeah, but that's the case with every human being that walks into our church. So these are the layers that are being considered by churches and by us, all right? So there's three levels, I told you that. So the first level is this, attendance. Everybody that's watching this and you're trying to handle this with your church or your denomination, you gotta ask the question, who's free to come into your sanctuary? Right? I'm going to tell you just for Bridgeway, and I don't want to go through all this stuff every time about what Bridgeway believes. We'll talk to you about that on a case-by-case basis. But everyone is welcome to come to Bridgeway. If you want to attend here, I'd rather have you here than anywhere else in the entire world. If I do not have a safe place for you, if I do not have a place where we're talking about Jesus Christ, if you are not feeling loved here, then something's wrong. Right? Everybody is welcome at Bridgeway. That's the first layer. Second layer is membership and serving. Membership and serving. Every denomination and church has to ask themselves, what does your membership covenant say? If that's already written down, if you don't have one, you have to design one. Now, at Bridgeway, ours says, quote, I commit myself to God and other members to live a godly life. What does that mean? It means that we have to have a discussion, no matter who you are. I'm going to have a very different discussion with some guy who's living with his girlfriend and he doesn't know any better than I am for somebody that comes in and they're a womanizer and they're constantly going around and having sex with everybody. Those are two different conversations, right? Membership matters, but it doesn't block the ability to belong. What membership means at Bridgeway is that you allow us to hold you accountable so we can trust you with important voting issues. That's all it means. So you get to vote on important things, but it doesn't block you from being a part of the body. Let's talk about serving. Every church has to figure out, there's two levels of serving. There's bringing blessing and there's leading blessing. What do I mean? I mean there's simple service roles, right? Serving in the cafe, greeting at the door, assisting behind the scenes in creative arts department. We got people serving in those areas that are still trying to even understand the whole God thing. But then there's leading blessing. 
Lead worship people singing, talking up on stage, teachers and servants back with the kiddos and kids way, running the connection center in the lobby. That's a different level of serving. And then there's complicated roles, right? Does the drummer of the worship team need to be a believer? It's interesting, just to be thinking about that. Because here's the interesting thing. What if that person is out in the world, they're a musician, they happen to get a bunch of friends from church, and they said, you know what, we'd love for you to come join us. We'd love for you to see what it's all about, and you can use your gifts. And they get saved. Is that bad? Now, do you understand that's a little different than somebody that's leading up front? One's behind the, the set, One's out front telling you what to sing. Those are two different things. So we get to the third level, which is leadership. There's three levels of leadership. The first one is lay leadership. That's anybody that's unpaid. Now at Bridgeway, we are majority lay leadership, right? Everyone's like, like, yep, that's true. I'm not paid. And, And we can have extraordinarily influential people in there. Our whole men's ministry is run unpaid. Our whole entire women's ministry is run unpaid. Our family ministry is unpaid, and it goes on and on and on. These are people that have access to leading the majority of the entire congregation, but they're not paid. So don't mistake when I say lay leadership like that's a small deal. That's a huge deal. But you have to understand that when someone is volunteering, there's a different level of accountability than there is with someone paid. The second level is staff leadership. That's paid at any level. The minute the church starts saying, I am investing in you in dollars, there's an accountability that you have to adhere to a certain thing. That changes the level, right? Role modeling matters. Y'all, all sins are not equal treatment in the church, nor should they be, right? They're not created equal or Are they all equal in the sight of God? Yep. Are they all handled equal? No, they are not. Why? Because some sins are role modeling sins and some sins are private sins. You're like, well, they should be handled the same. I think you should think through that a little bit more. The third level of leadership is pastors, elders, and senior leadership. This is the highest level of accountability. This is the highest level of expectation. We are basically saying for those positions, you're the spiritual parent. You need to be the role model and people need to be able to duplicate your life. So there's going to be a different expectation, right? All right. But there's one big verse that everybody always wants to know about, right? The big verse is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Because this is the idea. How do we handle it in the church? How do we handle it in the church? Well, Paul said you kick them out, right? Let's handle this. I'm going to read through this in its totality. It is actually reported, Paul said, that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, that's incest, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit, Paul said, is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you just have to leave the planet. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Right? I mean, I get this question, right? So is this how church is supposed to be run? Here's the irony. We like to pick out which sin should be picked on. Because here's the deal. We want to play that game. We don't have a church. We will root every one of you out. And when I'm alone in the building, I condemn myself. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Like, there is no church. So that's not what he means. What he's talking about is an arrogant, full embracing of anti-Christian views. And he's going, that's not going to happen here. We're not playing that game. We're not allowing that person to wreck everything going on here. This is about people claiming to be believers while engaged in overt, aggressive, I don't care what God says. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people that have sin in their lives. That is the church. Do you understand that we are here as a church to help those that need more Jesus. That's why we exist. If we start playing the game of who do we kick out, we're gonna keep kicking out everybody. I don't think that's what church is for. And I don't think that's what Paul meant at all. We are here to help those seeking the Lord. There's a big difference between a wolf and an unhealthy lamb. Y'all following me? You get rid of the wolf, you keep the lamb that's all jacked up, right? Big difference. So what help does God provide through the church? I'm going to give you six examples real fast. Number one, the power tools for rebuilding. Prayer, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Y'all, when you come to church, you should be able to be defended. The church should be able to pray for you. The church should be able to renew your mind. The church should be able to give you scriptures. The church should be able to back you up. Number two, we should be affirming you and creating safe places as a human being. In other words, the church continues to close its doors to the LGBTQ community. Where are they supposed to go? Away? I thought the point was they belong in church. It's for them. That's what church is for. They need a place to be who they are so they can become who God desires them to be, just like the rest of us, right? Number three, the church should be a place for valuable role models. All human beings grow up by role modeling. We need healthy role models. If we shove everybody that's broken into deeper broken areas, where are the good role models? You can just duplicate the lifestyles around you and that's all you got. And we're like, oh, how come you're not growing up faster? Right? Number four, we should be the place of leading healing through unresolved emotional pain. You guys, independent of LGBTQ, Attraction, that community, from my vantage point, 
because they've had to avoid the church, has an awful lot of hurts that are not being ministered to. We should be the place to say, what else can we talk about? What's going on with your past? What's going on with your heart? What's going on in your life? That's where we should be. Number five, we should be a place to train healthy Christian identity. I think that's the job of the church. Number six, we should be a place for healthy friendships. Here's what's interesting. For someone that has received trauma in their past, they need healthy people of the same sex to hang out with and be friends with. Shouldn't that be the place that you go to? You'd find that at church? That should be the place. So, the third major area, C, what do I do with myself, right? Let's say I'm the one that's struggling with same-sex attraction. What must the same-sex attraction Christian who didn't choose this do? What does God expect from someone living an LGBTQ lifestyle? There are four things I want you to keep in mind. Number one, aligning our proper orientation towards God. The most important orientation that you have is not sexual, it is not gender, it is your orientation towards God. And you've got to focus like the rest of us on what? It's got to be God's way, and it's got to be about God's glory. That has to be the number one thing that's important to you. In order to do that, you need to see God as Savior, your Savior. You need to see God as Lord and King, your Lord and King. And you need to see God as your Father in a healthy way. Number two, I believe that we need to posture and prepare our hearts. We got to want to be transformed. Jesus doesn't just force his way into your life. Do you want transformation? Then that's going to require total surrender. We got to take up our cross daily. We got to put our sexuality into the right container. What is that? 2 Peter 2.9 Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You gotta be the one in control of you. That's gonna require full engagement and reestablishing your Christian identity. Number three, if you really want things to shift in your life, you have to adjust your environment. You have to have healthy community with healthy friends and healthy support. The Bible said it's not good to be alone. The more Satan can isolate you, the more you're gonna hurt. You need community. And you need partnership in the process. That's why I remember we had Pastor Carl come in here and he was talking about how he's at a ministry where he just gathers in and says, are you struggling? Are you struggling? Let's talk about it. Praise God, that's awesome. You can't do it alone. And number four, you got to set some healthy expectations. Pain, suffering, brokenness are a part of life. If you're looking for all your pain to go away, that doesn't happen till heaven. The commercials keep telling us that there's a time when we're not going to have any more problems. The commercials keep telling us if we only get the next product, we're going to be okay and everything's going to feel right. That's not true. If you go, man, I must still not be right because I don't feel right. Nobody feels right. We're all hurting somehow. We got to reset our expectations and be patient with our process. You're a human being. There's process. We got to find peace in our journey. If we keep asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That doesn't make the process any more peaceful. 
And we've got to reject comparison with other people. Well, how come I'm still struggling with this when so-and-so doesn't struggle with this? And why do I got to be alone if they don't have to be alone? And why do I? Everybody's got their walk. I've shared with you before, so many people come up and they're like, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, Lance, things always go your way. Pastor of a large church, you have everything going for you. Man, I'm all kind of messed up. You don't know. You can't see it on the outside. There's all kinds of issues that I have. Trust me, you don't want my life, right? So I refer to it that we need to be in a posture of the chiropractic approach, which is what? We just need to get the obstacles out of the way and allow God to bring in some healing. Is it going to happen fast? No, but it's important. Let's go to our last segment, ministering to our loved ones. What if my loved one or my child says, I think I'm LGBTQ? Um, I'm going to talk about parenting for a moment and talk about how much it matters. But let me remind you of something I said before. Parents immediately go into self-blame. That's got no place here. Please cut yourself some room to live. This is not appropriate. Now, if you react mean, it has an effect, right? According to the CDC report, family support plays a huge role in the likelihood of suicide. So once again, if we're talking about that, families that were mean and cast out and rejected allowed the person to be eight times more likely to commit suicide. That's a huge stat. So does it matter how you act? Yes. But are you going to do everything right? No. Did you cause that? Stop. Parents, breathe. You're okay. I'm going to give you um, a whole series. I'm going to give you nine things as we close out. Nine things that we need to do if our child comes out to us or if a family member comes out to us. Number one, listen deeply and don't assume. Listen deeply and don't assume. Processing for someone that is struggling with same-sex attraction is critical. They need somewhere to talk and they need you to be the listening ear. They need someone to listen. They don't need advice as much as they need to be heard. And when they start talking, don't jump to the end of their story. Keep listening. Number two, it's not primarily about you. I understand it's going to be super hard for you. There's going to be a loss of dreams. There's going to be perhaps some embarrassment for you as a parent. There's going to be questions how you're going to present it to other people. But remember this, it is not about you. It's not about your social circle. It's not about people at church. It's about your child. Let's keep it about the child. Number three, research and talk with other parents who have gone through this. Research and talk with other parents that have gone through this. And you're like, well, I don't know anybody. That's why we need the church. We're currently looking at a, at a ministry proposal of saying, hey, my child came out as transgender. Do you want to talk about it? We're looking at that right now. Why? Because if we don't have people to walk through this stuff with, we hurt. We hurt extra. Number four, continually re-rack your heart and mind. Continually re-rack your heart and mind. Don't let your mind wander into what-ifs and everything negative. Number five, verbal and consistent reaffirmation of love. 
There should never be a moment that your child or loved one doubts your love and they can't read your mind. You have to keep telling them that you love them because they're doubting themselves. Your voice has to be louder than the enemy's, right? Number six, be careful of sudden significant changes. Be careful of sudden and significant changes. What do I mean? Because of the, t- the tension and the stress your child is under, they may want to do something radical. We can't get on board with radical. We've got to slow down, and we've got to work together gently, calmly. Number seven, it's a long-term process. It's a long-term process. It's not going to change overnight, and it may not change at all. You're going to have ups. You're going to have downs. It's a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. Number eight, this issue does not stop you from parenting them. When you get a big issue like this, suddenly nothing else matters, right? Oh my gosh, it's such a big issue, and you forget the fact that they still need to have a curfew. They still need to be corrected for cleaning their room. They still need to be part of family dinner table. You can't just go, well, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with the LGBTQ issue. Oh, I have nothing else to talk about. You're a mom and dad. You're allowed to have boundaries. You're allowed to be mom and dad. And number nine, prayer is vital. My wife and I believe firmly in parenting by prayer, which basically means we try to pray health into our kids. We're just constantly praying about them about everything. I got to pray about my marriage just to keep everything sane and legitimate, right? Well, in the same way, prayer is so vital because God says it's vital. So if you can't vent to somebody, vent to the Lord and get this stuff out and talk to the Lord and go, God, I'm scared. God, I don't know what to do. God, would you help soothe them? God, they're getting depressed and I can't solve it. God, I need you to be with them in their room. They won't let me in. God, I want you to care for them and pour down your love upon them. God, keep them strong. God, keep them, right? That's what we do. Why? We're parents. I want to end our time with encouragement. Here's the reality. You ready? And you just soak this in. I just want you to hear this. You don't have to write this down. I just want you to hear this. This is for everybody in the room, everybody listening, everybody a part of this whole process, right? Listen to me. We are loved by an understanding God. Nothing is beyond his ability, and a broken world has never stopped him before. He wants us to be free. He wants us to be healthy more than we want to be. Together as a church, we can walk through anything. This issue is complex and it's complicated, but we're sorting it out together. No matter what you struggle with, you are loved by our leadership here at Bridgeway, by our staff, by our elders, and by our leaders. And God is not done with us yet. Amen? So what's next at Bridgeway? This is what I can assure you. Our pastors our leaders, our elders are equipped to have the conversation. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever's going on in your life, please do not hide. Please do not run away. We want to have the conversation. If it's hurting you, it's going to hurt us. We want to be able to talk with you. That's number one. Number two, our prayer team is ready to rally around you. Our prayer team is ready to rally around you. Currently, our prayer team is at 80 people. That's a lot of power, right? Number three, our care and compassion department 
are trained and ready to go. If we want to talk about stuff, let's talk about stuff. You can even go with them behind closed doors and leadership doesn't even need to know. And finally, is our congregation safe for you? I wish I could say yes, but I can't. That's why we're having this talk. Y'all, we have 300 people in this room in a church of what, four or 5,000 people? Is it safe for everyone that you walk into at the church? It is not. We're working on it. This is the start, right? And, and the way that you have reacted, the way that you've been prayerfully considering this, the way that you've been loving and compassionate, I have high hopes for our congregation. You know, I was asked, as I close, I was asked, Pastor Lance, what do you want out of this? Right? I mean, you set up this whole thing. What do you really want? Like, you're trying to drop some bomb on the church. What are you trying to say? What are you, you're trying to bring a new policy in. You guys ready? Here's what I want. Calm wisdom in everybody. That's all I want. I want us to have thought through it and given it time. I want us to have compassionate hearts and loving. I want us to know that we can sit down, that if somebody walks in that is so transgendered, we're talking not even just the transgendered in the, in the traditional way. I'm talking drag. I'm talking cross-dressing. I'm talking about a dude in heels. If he walks into this church, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to be shaken. I want your next question to be, how are you today? I want our congregation so wise and so unflappable and so unshakable. I want us to be able to look with the eyes of Jesus. Nothing rattled Jesus. What do I want? I want the eyes of Jesus staring out of every member of Bridgeway Christian Church. I want anyone to be able to walk in here and we get into something deeper than simply your sexuality. I want to be able to talk about other stuff. I want to make sure that somebody walks in and they go, oh my gosh, did you see that those two girls are holding hands and they have to run up and tell me before I preach? I want our whole church to be calm and wise. I want our church to be godly and loving. That's all I really want. Is that possible? You guys, that's why you're here in this room. You're the influencers. You're the leaders. You're the ones that care. You have a stake in all this, or you wouldn't be here for four weeks in a row. As we continue to talk with our congregation, they're going to wonder what in the world's going on. You know what's going on? We're just trying to grow up. We're just trying to be like Jesus. That's all I really want. We are about to listen to a testimony. It's going to be on video because they're out of town. And this is a couple who lived like Jesus. They had a young man in their life that identified as LGBTQ. They loved him rightly. They brought him into their home and they were part of Jesus's transformation in his world. We are now gonna hear a story from the Tackets and a story from RL himself. Can I draw your attention to the screens? I go by RL, my name is Richard, um, Richard Leon. I'm an only child, um, so I, don't, I grew up alone in Alabama 
and I find my identity in Christ. That's where I am at today. I am a process server. I used to do cheer. Met Mike and Sabina in 2007 um, at a cheer camp, and I spent probably six camps in Santa Cruz with Sabina, and that's how we really, we really got to know each other. I am a children's and family pastor at Quail Lakes Baptist Church down in Stockton, and this is Sabina, my wife. So I'm a stay-at-home mom with my four kids, but two of them go to school, so I only work with my girls at home. Um, and I do a lot of ministry. Sabina and I, um, we're both cheerleaders. We've been cheerleaders for a long time. And so we, we work for a company, and we all work for the same company, United Spirit Association, and we did summer camps together uh, where we teach camps. And when you work summer camps with somebody, it is five days, 24 hours a day and you see the best of people and you see the worst of people and you get to know them and you get to bond with them um, really well. You become best friends overnight is what happens. And then over the years, about seven years or so, I got to really get to know them and grow over the summer with them at your camp. My background before Jesus, uh, I found my identity in what I did, which was cheerleading. So I was a cheerleader for about 21 years. So I found a lot of what, a, what I did in my sport. Um, along with that, there was a stereotypical kind of aspect for male cheerleaders, which for the most part is true. I was, I was gay. So I lived a homosexual lifestyle and uh, kind of embraced that in cheerleading, which was a lot of partying and drugs and alcohol and promiscuity. I was living in my life um, just really engrossed in the world and being a little bit self-destructive. I wasn't happy with where I was, um, just unable to find any type of joy in what I was doing. So I put myself in dangerous situations and ended up getting into a traumatic situation where I was raped. Um, and Sabina, being the woman that she is, reached out to me and was like, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? And I lied and was like, I'm doing great. And then the next message, she reached out and was like, I was just thinking you should come live with us. So it had been like three, almost three years since we had seen Aral. We had moved back to California and he just kept popping up on my Facebook wall. And the more I saw him, the more I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, Aral's not right. Something's wrong with Aral, check on him. And that's when I just Facebook messaged him and I was like, I mean, it's total God thing. So I wrote him and I'm like, hey, how are you? And he's like, fine. And, no, you're not. I just had this feeling you should come live with us. And he's in Alabama at the time. And uh, the conversation like really quickly just like rolled. And he's like, I can't just move there. I need a job. I'll find you a job. You'll work at the gym. You'll work at the gymnastics place. It's literally around the block from me. Like I could drive you there. It'll be fine. We're checking our Facebook messages the other night and it literally was like, then they Skyped and then he got hired and then we bought the tickets. And then the next message was, okay, I asked Mike, he said, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know any of this was happening. And she said, hey, Earl's gonna come with him. <laughs> okay. But I mean, really it was the Holy Spirit and I just knew something was going on. And so shortly after I'd invited him already, we had got him a job. Then we started talking about, okay, what's going on in your life? Because I just knew there were some dark things. And amazingly, and RL's always been really honest, he just started sharing what had happened to him, what was going on in his life. And I just felt like, okay, 
you know, the Holy Spirit said, come live with us. Maybe God just wants him to get out of the people that are around him. And then also we didn't want him to feel or us to feel uncomfortable that he was going to be doing stuff in our house that we didn't agree with and or our children seeing. Yeah. And so we sought wisdom and they said, you need to set some boundaries and you need to make sure that it's all in the open and that you converse about these boundaries, that everybody is comfortable with this. So in a way, kind of like a verbal contract. As he's talking to me, I'm getting vibes that are like, no, he's probably drinking too much. He's probably doing too much drugs. But when I'm looking at him, I'm always like, I just can't tell you the love that just, I see it now, I get all. <laughs> just the love that I felt towards RL. And that was, that was the bigger part of it all was just how much love I felt towards RL. And so those things didn't matter to me. And so I got off the phone or the Skype said, you know, all I see is so much hurt that's happened to him, so much abuse that I could understand why he turns to those things. And all I know is that I love him. And I think that we're strong enough to walk through this with him. And that's what I want. It was kind of normal to live with them because in my cheer experience, uh, I would travel and live with families um, and coach cheerleading in their, their area. And then I would do that for a short amount of time and then I would move. Uh, so living with them, it's kind of like I was conditioned to do it. I was ready. I knew what it was going to be like. They said, come live with us and get your life together. Um, it doesn't have to be about God, but we are very Christian people. I knew that about them, and I was okay with that. I was like, yeah, let's get my life together. I've, I've suffered a lot of traumatic things, and I want to I wanna better myself so I, I don't have to go through this again in my life. Um, Jesus wasn't really a part of it. It didn't have to be a part of it. They, they were okay sharing that, and I was okay with it. So I didn't go to church whenever I first came out here. Um, it actually took me close to a year, almost half of a year, close to a year, to, to really get committed into the church. Growing up in Alabama, that is kind of a part of our culture, being among church people. So coming to church, it, it kind of put that back, that feeling back. So I'm like, oh, this is normal, but I gotta have my guard up. So growing up in the church, I've always kind of known about Jesus. That's how I knew that there was something different in, in me. Like I always just knew that I was different. So I felt wrong about who I liked and what I was looking at and those types of things. Like I always knew that there was something that was wrong. There was a lot of questions that couldn't be answered and I just kept turning through the Bible and I just kept flipping up and just looking at them and reading things and then asking questions out loud and then flipping back through the Bible. Yeah, so there were rules that we had set before RL came. Um, and so I think it was just three rules, and that was no drugs, no alcohol, and no dating. <clears throat> and the no dating rule, like we had told him, had everything to do with that we just wanted him to come and focus on himself because he'd been in this world that was just so about being with other people and not thinking like, gosh, I've gone through a lot in my life and I need to process all of this and what am I gonna do with my life because these things have happened and that's what we wanted him to do. And we knew that we didn't have the knowledge of how to take care of all the things he went through because there's some dark stuff in there. So we had said, when you come, we want you to have a counselor too. And so when he came, he found 
a counselor that was given to him and I would drive him to his counseling sessions. And like I said before, he's always been really open. So we would talk. So I'd be like, okay, what'd you guys talk about today? And uh, she was talking about identity. And so when, and I remember when he showed me this paper she had given him and it was like, you know, who you are and how they described identity. I'm reading it and just thinking like, this is not what our identity is. And how is she gonna describe to him identity when she doesn't believe in God? Sabina had um, signed me up for Divine Design because it had a lot of similar uh, correlations with your identity and who you are and personality traits and things like that. So Divine Design is our course in church that kind of plugs you in to see what type of ministry you'd be good at. Before I even finished Divine Design, I got plugged into the cafe. They uh, had a Help Wanted sign. And I started going to church. Sometime after that, uh, one of my, my leaders in the cafe was like, you need to go to service. And I didn't really want to, but I got into service and I got some hugs. As I was trying to figure out who my identity was is whenever I really saw that this is this is where I should find myself. This is who I am. Whenever you start to look at your identity, you see all the things that have been taken away, and you realize that's not who you are. And so the one thing that I found myself in was I'm a child of God. So as I started to look for myself, I started to see myself in God. So when RL got done with Divine Design, then he kind of jumped into the cafe, and then from cafe he met people that attended our young adults. Um, church service and so then he started attending there and met a friend and that friend invited him to another Bible study that was at a church in Lodi, California so he started attending there and I'm like are going to five Bible studies like he's found a new addiction this is I guess a good thing <laughs> but this night he came home and as soon as he opened the door he was bawling he was crying he comes in and sits down and he's still like you know <laughs> collecting himself and the first words out of his mouth were, being gay is wrong. And he's looking at us with a question. And it was another one of those God moments where both Mike and I just looked at each other and didn't answer the question. And this is just my opinion and how God worked in us was that God said, again, this is between me and RL and not you. And so I think my words to RL were, Mike and I, have a belief on that. Yes, we do. But we want you to know what God is telling you about this. And the only way that you're gonna know what God is telling you is if you open up the Word and study. And we stayed up till two in the morning, Googling verses, looking up verses, interpreting verses together, asking Him what He felt like the Lord was telling Him. Then He had said, and I, I don't think I can change. I've tried to not be gay. Like, I, I can't do it. Mike had said, but the difference in your life now is you're not doing it alone. God is in you, and God makes those changes, and God will transform your heart in that. And at the end of the night, we just prayed, and I feel like that was the night that really changed RL. All we want is for someone to come up beside us and tell us that they care. Um, just to know that they're walking beside of us instead of judging us or thinking that they know something that we need to know. It's just be our friend and talk to us. And then eventually, conversation's gonna happen where 
We're just gonna open up and we're gonna tell you what's hurting us. And then eventually, like it can just grow into a, a real conversation where you can be like, I don't have the answers, but this is how I feel. This is what I take from the word. Out of those conversations, we had no idea what transcribed. Um, because we look back and we're like, I don't know what we said. I have no idea. Um, so we got to give that to the Holy Spirit that he's using us as vessels. You know, everything had grace in it. Everything had love. And that was the underlining thing that we need to make sure that we kept in check, that we gave everything to Jesus first and that we knew that love was the reason. Jesus had to give us that and really give us the power to, um, to allow it, you yeah. know, and to keep it going and to deepen that friendship and that relationship, yeah. you know? RL is no longer just a friend. RL is part of the family.